Welcome to members of our board and supporters of the Wilson Center, and thank you for joining this call, both from the United States and around the world. Uh, this is the fifth installment of our private Wilson Center briefs on COVID-19. Each week, we're inviting experts to help the extended Wilson family, that's all of you and me, make sense of this pandemic and how different regions are responding to it. Um, we have so many uh, dear friends on the call. I would like to recognize two former board members, uh, Ambassador Joseph Gildenhorn and his family. Uh, Joe was our, uh, our, our highly respected chair uh, for 11 years, and Ambassador Chuck Cobb. We have the co-chairs of our Global Advisory Council, General David Petraeus and Sir John Scarlett, and we have other members, both of the Global Advisory Council and our cabinet, including uh, Marlene Malik, Don McClellan, John Phelan, Ken Slater, Diana Davis Spencer, and I'm sure others that I should be recognizing. At any rate, a staggering two million people around the world, two million people have now been infected uh, with uh, COVID-19. With this crisis far from over, the world is looking for answers to how things got so bad in the first place. Wuhan in central China is ground zero for the pandemic. The virus is thought to have originated there in December in a wet market selling exotic animals. But scientists have not confirmed which species carried the disease and how it was transmitted to humans. The world is also looking to China to understand the economic recovery from the coronavirus. More than 10 weeks after Wuhan was locked down and effectively isolated from the rest of the country, the city of 11 million is tentatively reopening. But the recovery will be long and painful, and foreign investment in China may never be the same. Rather than prompting the U.S. and China to find common ground, sadly, COVID-19 seems to have amplified tension and distrust. Government officials and citizens alike have engaged in vitriol and conspiracy theories about the other side. Hopefully some of you on this call will ask about some of those theories, and I'd be very interested to hear Robert Daly's answers. Um, add to that ongoing disputes over trade practices, tariffs, and human rights. Where does all this leave the U.S.-China relationship? And what will be the consequences of further deterioration? So I've just already uh, um, uh, scooped my lead. Uh, joining us to help tackle these questions is the one and only Robert Daly, director of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. Robert is no stranger to crises like this. He was the American director of the Johns Hopkins Nanjing Center in eastern China during the SARS epidemic in 2002 to 2003. Robert, why didn't you stop it then? Uh, he previously served as a U.S. diplomat in Beijing, as an interpreter for Chinese and U.S. leaders, including Jimmy Carter and Henry Kissinger, the head of uh, China programs at several universities, and he even starred in a Chinese-made uh, soap opera. One of you can ask him about that if you don't know the story. I look forward to hearing Robert's clear-headed, as usual, assessment and please note that the first portion of, of this conversation, as always, will be recorded and will be followed by an off-the-record Q&A segment. If you have a question, please email it to Nora Bodner, Nora Bodner at WilsonCenter.org, and she will uh, uh, identify you and ask your question. Now please join me in welcoming Robert Daly.
Thank you, Jane, and thanks to all of you for Center, so many of whom have also become personal friends over the past few years, and I hope that this finds you and your family members uh, all in good health and, and weathering this as well as possible. Uh, terrific introduction to the issue from Jane. I would like to get right into the thesis of this call and try to keep it uh, as succinct as possible so that we have more time for discussions. U.S.-China relations, as you know, have become a major focus uh, of the coronavirus, of responses to the pandemic worldwide, and these are it's an con increasingly contentious issue. And in fact, I'm going to argue today that the relationship, which has been on the rocks and getting worse for a number of years, as we've discussed numerous times at Wilson, uh, really has now, I think, not only reached, but probably crossed a breaking point. And I'd like to tell you why I think so. It is related to the concept of decoupling that you've all been hearing a lot about. And a lot of decoupling was in place well before the coronavirus hit. Uh, as Jane said, we've seen an acceleration in the downward trend in the relationship uh, between the United States and China, but it wasn't coronavirus that began this. So decoupling. We hear the most about supply chain decoupling. Global supply chains uh, have been coming apart uh, very rapidly, especially since the beginning of the trade war. We have seen not only trade war pressures for decoupling, but also from this administration beginning in 2017, a call for American defense supply chain resilience, initially called for in an executive order in 2017. The Defense Department has completed the analysis uh, that was called for in the executive order, what is involved in ensuring that the American military can supply all of its critical needs domestically. And this entails things like reopening a rare earths industry. And obviously the defense uh, supply chain is very closely related to the commercial supply chain. So in addition to the trade war, that has been a major uh, impetus for supply chain decoupling. That has been given further momentum during the coronavirus pandemic by a call for biopharmaceutical and medical equipment self-sufficiency, meaning decoupling, because depending on what kind of equipment, medicine, or reagents or precursors for medicines we look at, the United States is dependent on China for 80 to 95% of its supply of biopharmaceuticals and medical equipment. And there's a bipartisan consensus that that is not acceptable. These pressures for supply chain decoupling are causing a major rethink uh, about the nature of Amer the American economic system, even within the Republican Party. And I would refer you here to Senator Rubio's uh, November 5th speech at Catholic University, which is on Catholic social doctrine and the dignity of work. That was then followed up by a speech that Rubio also gave on December 10th at the National Defense University, in which he called for, quote, a 21st century pro-American industrial policy, specifically to counter a rising China. So we see now concerns about the geostrategic competition with China uh, coming up against market orthodoxy, the orthodoxy of free markets. And it's not just Senator Rubio. Sen uh, uh, Mr. Pompeo, the Secretary of State, in his speech to the Silicon Valley Leadership Group in January, called on companies to be both profitable and patriotic. Patriotic meaning don't supply any resources or expertise to China. It's not clear how to do that. So supply chain decoupling, 
is not complete. It will probably never be complete. It will be partial, but it is ongoing. It is accelerating, but that's not all we face. We also have the related decoupling of technology systems, of digital systems, and you have seen this over the past two years in the battles over Huawei and ZTE, which are the Chinese uh, telecom suppliers, but it's not just those companies. DJI, which has a 70% of global market share in photographic drones, a Chinese company from Shenzhen, is all also now nearly banned in the United States, and we're also looking at Chinese social media uh, platforms like TikTok, which is extremely popular. I know with my 12-year-old daughter and her friends, they're the main sorts of uh, audience for this, but TikTok is a Chinese company that might be able to collect data on United States citizens, which could be used uh, not only to inform China about the United States, the, the criticism goes, but it can also provide uh, data to China's AI developers. So tech systems are decoupling in the area of telecoms and social media, but we also have legislation calling for American companies not to provide any equipment to China that could help it build out its surveillance state, the development of a form of soft sort of techno-totalitarianism in China, which is aided by new technology, much of which depends on America. We, we are walking back from that kind of trade, as we are from any uh, kind of technology that has military dual use. So supply chain decoupling, tech system decoupling, but again, that's not all. We are also facing increasing pressures for financial system decoupling. Uh, China is very suspicious of, resentful of, the power exercised by the United States through the U.S. dollar's status as the world's sole uh, or primary reserve currency. China is trying to develop alternatives to the SWIFT global payment system, which the United States uses not only to enable commerce, banking, financial systems worldwide, but we also use it to carry out secondary sanctions on a number of nations and international companies. And China is seeking to set up an alternate system to SWIFT. At the same time, in the financial system decoupling, which hasn't got quite a full head of steam yet, but it's accelerating during coronavirus, we see more U.S. efforts uh, to keep Chinese companies off the stock mar American stock market or even to have them delisted on the grounds, and, and in my view, this is uh, a legit, very legitimate argument, that many Chinese companies in their annual and quarterly reports do not meet American markets' standards for transparency, uh, auditable accounting, accurate accounting. Uh, by and large, it is true that many of these companies don't meet those standards. We were happy at beginning in the late 90s to let them onto American markets anyway uh, because we wanted to but now there's a strong pressure to delist, to make Chinese uh, stocks, Chinese companies unable to tap American investment in the United States and in China, where there is pressure to get uh, American state personnel system, military funding out of the Chinese stock market. I was involved in a case uh, about a month ago now in which uh, CalPERS, the California personnel system, through indexed fund mechanisms is invested in Chinese companies. And the members of Congress have been going after that. The argument here is that uh, American government workers and military should not be supporting companies that might actually be detrimental to American power. Uh, that's a fairly easy argument to understand, except that the managers of these funds are charged with getting 4% return on investment 
to guarantee the retirement of American public servants, and to date, you've needed access to the Chinese market to get 4%. There's a tension here. So supply chain, tech system decoupling, financial system decoupling, all extremely serious, all worrisome. But what I think brings us to the breaking point is something less dramatic and less commented on, but that probably has a bigger impact on the course of U.S.-China relations. And that is that we are now seeing a decoupling of in global information and knowledge systems. And this is much harder to roll back. By information systems, I'm referring to traditional and social media, of course, but also films, also gaming, uh, electronic games. I know that's probably not a major concern for all of us on these calls, but gaming matters. It's an enormous industry. It's bigger than Hollywood worldwide. It's been more profitable than film industries for years. And pl the playing of online games has become, over the past two decades, the common experience of young people around the world. That is now being... It's under threat. It's disintegrating because even games are seen as carrying uh, narratives that can be insidious or they can be used as platforms for politics. There's a very popular game called Animal Crossing, which if you look at the interface, it's a sort of a childish game uh, about animals crossing roads. But Hong Kong protesters have been using it to embed anti-Chinese messages, and China is now banning it. The real problem, of course, with the decoupling of information systems is not just gaming and the sorts of narratives that are involved in those, is that is increasingly, when you look at the, uh, especially the, the tit-for-tat uh, expulsions of journalists that we've seen between the United States and China over the past several weeks connected to the coronavirus, the United States and China, the people of these countries, the leaders, the journalists, the students, increasingly approach the world and public policy having learned separate histories because our information systems are decoupled. They bring separate histories, separate moral narratives to public policy. They bring increasingly different sets of contemporary facts to these arguments, and they invoke different authorities in their determination of truth. Now, I know when we talk about different narratives in this way, it can sound very soft and it can sound we are even with the coronavirus, what Jane mentioned right at the head of this. A public health crisis is supposed to be something like the alien invasion, which shocks all the nations of Earth into realizing that they have common cause and brings them together. But we actually have different narratives with catastrophic results. For most of the world, a pandemic is about public health, putting it first and doing whatever has to be done to protect public health. But for the Chinese Communist Party, it has been primarily a narrative, both domestically and internationally, about preserving the stability of China and the authority of the Chinese Communist Party. That's what has come first. That's why they covered up uh, the facts and the data early in the, in the pandemic and why they may still be lying about some of their data. For the United States, it would appear uh, that the primary narrative is one of balance of power in American domestic politics. Again, not public health. So these Different informational universes are increasingly dangerous. It's an imperfect analogy. But think of, for example, the red states and blue states in the United States. Red states with Fox, blue states with MSNBC. Let's say we're dealing in broad strokes. But you all know how divisive American politics has become, how difficult it is to have conversations across that divide. Now imagine that the red and blue states also have separate territories 
long-standing armies, and both of them want their system and their values to prevail. How do we think that would go here in the United States? Between the United States and China, the two superpowers, it's an even larger problem, and the information decoupling matters. And we see real-world real instances of this. There's a Wuhan author, a woman named Fang Fang, who was very popular in China. She was one of the people who quite heroically kept a journal of her experience of the epidemic. She has now been attacked in China, is being vilified, not because the Chinese disagree with what she's saying, but because her critique has been published in America and the West, and it is making China look bad to foreigners. So she's being attacked not on the facts, but her narrative is being rejected because it's accepted in the United States. We had an, another instance of this sort just last week in which the White House criticized the voice of America for a factual report on the city of Wuhan, the city of 11 million that Jane mentioned at the outset, now reopening. They're coming out of lockdown. They've opened Absolutely an important story for the entire world. Uh, it's a bit of a milestone in the pandemic. DOE did a factual report in which it used uh, B-roll footage of celebratory lights coming on on the Wuhan skyline. And the White House attacked the Voice of America for spreading Chinese communist propaganda, not because the facts were wrong, the facts were indisputable, but because it was thought that it made China look good. These separate narratives based on the decoupling of information systems are also changing our diplomacy. Chinese uh, diplomats have become newly aggressive. The United States State Department has uh, something called the Global Engagement Center, uh, and this is a heavily funded part of the State Department in the public diplomacy side, uh, which is not telling America's story, but wants to make sure that in every major embassy, we have American diplomats who know China, who can warn local policymakers, publics, and influencers about nefarious Chinese goals. So public diplomacy is about undermining each other's narratives now, rather than, in our case, presenting the American point of view. And then lastly, we see the decoupling of knowledge systems as well. And here I mean universities, laboratories, multinational organizations charged with defining and upholding standards are increasingly decoupling as well. Uh, we see increased calls in the United States uh, to ban Chinese scholars from certain disciplines, especially in STEM fields. Chinese universities, of course, have never been fully open to American universities. Uh, and because of the uh, distrust on the tech issue, increasingly our universities can't work together. And with the decoupling of information and knowledge systems, I would argue, the reason this matters more than the decoupling of financial systems, uh, tech, and supply chains, serious as those are, they can be turned around. They're easier to reverse than the cognitive decoupling that we see happening, which I think is resulting already in a very dangerous form of mutual alienation. These separate information and knowledge systems lead to echo chambers in both countries where we're talking to ourselves, usually with increasing anger. Again, think of the red state, blue state analogy, uh, without criticism and without feedback from the other countries. We are stymieing the growth of knowledge and setting the world's top scholars, Chinese and American, and innovators who could be working together, we're setting them against each other. And then, of course, separate information and knowledge systems, separate histories, uh, separate moral concepts, separate authorities, tends to lead to the dehumanization of the other, 
which makes violence that much easier to contemplate, even as we are re-embracing a doctrine of mutual assured destruction. Uh, there's considerable anger now between ordinary Chinese and American citizens against the other country, and it's growing. And then, as we've seen in the past two days, this kind of distrust and alienation also makes multinational action far more difficult and, in some cases, impossible. What would it really mean if we had separate rival World Health Organizations with different standards, different facts, uh, different practices. So on this grim note, I, I will end for now. I think that we are in for decades of mutual alienation between the United States and China. The question is whether that constitutes something like a Cold War standoff. I and most of my colleagues at the Wilson Center have been extremely hesitant to use the Cold War analogy. I remain hesitant because I, I think that there are numerous ways in which it's misleading, but it's getting tougher to resist that kind of conclusion. Uh, and I think that this will get worse, not better, before we come out of the pandemic. Thank you. Uh, Robert, thank you. Uh, I think everyone on this call, certainly including me, has his, her mouth open gasping at uh, the starkness of your description of uh, current events. Uh, I'm recalling, uh, maybe I'm hallucinating, which is certainly possible, uh, but I'm recalling just a year plus ago when we honored Henry Kissinger, the namesake of the Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S., and he gave a brilliant uh, he had a brilliant, he was, <laughs> let me try this again, he was interviewed uh, brilliantly by Stape uh, Roy about where are U.S.-China relations going in the next 10 years, and he basically said the goal is to find common ground and work on our differences, but find common ground. And we all know that the name of the institute bearing his name is the Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S., not the other way around, the goal being, again, to explain China to the U.S. and to bridge differences. Well, uh, I, I was making notes about decoupling in about uh, 10 areas, and I didn't see anything that looked very hopeful. So let me, let me ask you, <laughs> uh, just for one, one final depressing comment on decoupling, uh, you said this is that COVID-19 is accelerating uh, trends that already were happening. Uh, yes. Trends to what? Um, are we uh, – <laughs> maybe we're building separate systems, but in the end, I, I heard someone for the first time just describe the U.S. as a declining power. Mm. Um, should we see this in win-lose terms? Is China about to eclipse us, and uh, will it? Uh, win out in these, you know, five or ten areas that you've listed? Well, I, I don't mean to turn this into a, a Wilson Center self-advertisement, but uh, Abe Denmark, who heads the Asia program, and I did a, a what we call a now dialogue for the Wilson Center that was, I think, just was made available yesterday or the day before with John Maluski, which was entirely about the topic that Jane just asked about. So I, I, I was actually pretty happy with that. I'd refer you to that. Abe and I are both very pessimistic about China's ability to step in to have any exercise anything like uh, the kind of leadership that the United States has exercised. I think that uh, he and I both see this as a story more about American absence and about an American abandonment of the field than about a China uh, that is really ready to come on and take, take the mantle of global leadership. Uh, China has had trouble with that 
even in the case of the coronavirus, while it is the source for many nations of masks, respirators, ventilators, medicines, testing kits, uh, it has not yet been able to translate that into real influence. I would say in part because its naked self-interest and aggression is so readily transparent that even in nations that have take have purchased they're usually not donated some of them are donated but have purchased uh these materials there's strong resistance to china's uh very very obvious attempts to step in and, and demand credit for that so there is here uh whether or not the united states is declining it is less interested in leadership than it has been china is more ready I mean, more, is, is interested in leadership, but isn't really ready to do that, isn't yet accepted. So again, I, I refer you to the uh, NOW dialogue that we just completed. So it sounds more like a lose-lose rather than a win-lose. We're losing power because we're not asserting leadership, and China is not really gaining power because it's not capable uh, in certain respects. And that leads me to my second question about the Belt and Road Initiative that everyone is familiar with, which was hailed a couple of years ago as a brilliant stroke by China to build infrastructure around the world and to have many nations of the world indebted to China. Well, okay, uh, now uh, that uh, China's uh, GDP is declining, in fact, world GDP is declining, um, how does BRI look? Uh, is it a prescient diplomatic investment or is it a debt crisis waiting to happen? Well, uh, what China calls BRI, basically this refers to China's overseas infrastructure lending programs. Lending structure, uh, lending for infrastructure includes digital infrastructure as well as ports and roads and rails. Uh, there were elements of this program that were always somewhat illusory, and China's actual lending for these projects, while it was up slightly uh, in mid-2019, had been declining since 2016 and was down in early 2020, uh, even before the pandemic. Many of the loans that China made were to uh, less developed nations that were not able to get loans because they weren't deemed credit worthy from other international lenders like the Asian Development Bank, the IMF, the World Bank. Uh, and so these were already debt distressed nations like Pakistan, who now faced with domestic and worldwide recessions are going to be even less able to pay back their loans. Pakistan, which is uh, probably more loathed than any other Chinese partner to criticize Beijing or take actions that Beijing doesn't want to see, has basically ceased taking any new loans uh, from China. And so that's likely to become another driver for recession. Uh, I'm in a dialogue that the Kissinger Institute works on with a Chinese think tank, and it's uh, Chatham House rules, but I can tell you that last week in a discussion with major Chinese economists, they said that in private government discussions, they had determined that China's Q1 GDP growth rate was negative 10%. That will not be made public. They're, they're not going to announce anything uh, nearly that worrisome. They expect Q2 of negative 5% to negative 2%, and at best, zero growth in China for all of 2020. Uh, with the loss of many of its overseas markets. So, yes, BRI will lead a lot of uh, borrower nations into even greater debt distress, whether that will be their biggest problem uh, as the pandemic and the recession unfolds remains to be seen. 
Well, we may be leading uh, ourselves into debt distress as well by these multi-trillion dollar programs Congress is passing. Uh, not that it isn't necessary to stimulate the economy, but uh, when you think about it, we are burdening uh, not just our generation or our kids' generation, but our grandkids are going to face mountains of debt from uh, the way we're operating our country. It's for another discussion. But let me ask you questions in two more areas, and please, folks, uh, email uh, Nora Bodner. Uh, I, it, it's uh, nora.bodner at wilsoncenter.org uh, with questions because I'm sure that this group on this call has a lot of questions. So uh, I have two more. One area is uh, she's survival. Um, he has consolidated his power. No one has missed this. Um, he uh, has abolished presidential term limits. He has punished members of his own Politburo for corruption. Um, uh, many see that as a way just to remove his enemies. Uh, but the question is, and it's been speculated, uh, you know, is he invulnerable or is he really vulnerable uh, in some reasonable near term uh, to uh, uh, somehow being removed? I think that's highly unlikely. There has been a lot of writing asking whether this was Xi Jinping's Chernobyl moment. Uh, and I think that the answer is no. It is true that he has had an extremely bad year. Uh, the Chinese economy was slowing, and there was a lot of international blowback to the Belt and Road Initiative before the trade war. But then the trade war uh, went on longer at higher cost, and U.S.-China relations got far worse than Xi Jinping had foreseen, uh, which called his wisdom into question. We had the Hong Kong protests ongoing, uh, a rejection of the governance of the PRC. We had the, uh, we, the detention camps for Uyghurs, up to a million of them in Xinjiang, which put China's human rights record on the international agenda. We had Tsai Ing-wen uh, re-elected as president of Taiwan, the last result that uh, Xi Jinping wanted to have. And then the disastrous early management of the coronavirus uh, with the death of the whistleblowing doctors, the arrests and disappearance of scholars and journalists. This is ongoing. And a great deal of anger from the Chinese people about this. So he has had a terrible year. However, uh, there is no real alternative to Xi Jinping. Nobody can see an alternative. He's taken all of that off the table. And he has quite deftly used the fact that China came out of the coronavirus, it appears to date, this is still in play, before any other nation. And that, combined with the internationalization of the disease and the fact that other nations, especially the United States, have also handled it very badly, has given Xi the opportunity to conduct a lot of domestic propaganda in China, which says, you see, this is, this is not a Chinese problem. This is a human problem. We, the Communist Party, together with you, the people, made the sacrifices to heroically handle this better than the liberal democracies, and now we are a provider of public goods. Xi Jinping's calls to most world leaders expressing support and the donation sometimes, but usually sale of equipment uh, is front page every day in China. So we're now seeing China looking stronger to itself. It's not clear that this is selling very well internationally. And you may recall, Jane, I remember I can't remember what the event was, but it was early in the coronavirus in our auditorium. This came up, and the question was raised, and I said then that this could all end in hail Xi Jinping. And uh, so far, that's more likely than any real threat to his power. 